Hello and welcome to Downstream, the show about politics, culture, political culture and where you can get a free BBL. Today I'm very pleased to be with Simeon Brown, author of Get Rich or Lie, Trying, Ambition and Deceit in the New Influencer Economy. Simeon, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So for our viewers, can you just explain what the difference is between influencer culture and the models of celebrity that came before it? I mean, for me, I guess what the book is about is what it's like to live in an age where the ordinary person can generate attention and effectively monetize that. Celebrity in itself is not new, but before it was quite select, it was something that maybe a few individuals could control. So I can give you a show on mainstream TV, I could put you in a film, and the realms of celebrity was very much limited or it was quite uh, select, there was a shelf life. But in the age of kind of social media, celebrity is far more accessible, it's far more industrialized. I think the ASA say you only need 30,000 followers to be a celebrity. You have maybe over 20 times that. So you're definitely a celebrity Sick. in this day and age. But it's like celebrity now is something which is, you know, it's, it's, it's far more atomized, so it's far more attainable. And within that, it's created a whole new industry, a whole new set of incentives. And the possibilities of that and the disruptive power of that, but also the new spheres of, I guess, exploitation that are part of that is what I was interested in. And there are particular, I guess the book in itself is about influencer culture, but really it's about the nature of digital work. Really it's about the state of capitalism. Really it's about an age where the monetization of the self is seen as a way of escape from precarity. And I guess who would make up the new working class strata of this, of this sphere. But it does that in a way which, well, the book engages with that in a way which is less academic and I guess focuses on kind of just the people, who are the losers of this system, as opposed to the winners who we usually always hear about when we look at influencer cultures. I mean, I think one of the phrases you use in the book, and it's certainly one that springs to mind for me, thinking about influencer culture, is pyramid scheme. So there are a chosen few at the top, and their job is to sell the things that either they got for free or have been paid to promote to those who wish to ascend to that level of fame, attention, clout, whatever you want to call it. Would that be a fair description of what the economy shape is like? My, my, my view is that social media works exactly the same as a pyramid scheme. Even if you think about it in terms of how it is that people grow their followings, the easiest way largely is largely by just associating with people who have more followers than them. And so there's a, a hierarchical logic to the way that these platforms work. When they were being designed, the Instagram founder it was like, you know what, we don't want to call it friends, we want to call it followers, we want it to have an element of competition, and we want a change of relationship between people and their so-called audience. You know, Facebook initially had friends, this is about followers, it has a particular model. And so the pyramid scheme uh, comparison was a big part of what, what I look at, not just in terms of, I guess, the people who you could say are evangelists of this new role of possibilities and that, you know, you know you can, anybody can make it to the top of this realm, but also just in the actual logic of these platforms, how they work, how you grow. And the irony of that is that because this logic is so normal now, actually it's been able to reinvent the old pyramid schemes that have been around for over a hundred years and they've, they've resurfaced and they've, they've become, I don't know, galvanized, you could say, in various spheres. And you know, I guess we see some of like NFTs. But even then, there's like various realms that I look at in my book, very different economies that have pyramid scheme logics attached to it. So it's the, some of the crypto kind of, some of, some of the, script, the crypto guys, even some of 
the uh, you know the work from home and the various different forms that these companies have to have various different hats that these companies wear, a pyramid scheme is basically just what this realm is is is, is built on right now. Well, can we talk a little bit about the relationship between influencer work and sex work? Because one of the things that I find really striking is that I'm very obviously a political pundit, and then maybe there's a bit of football chat, maybe there's a bit of music, but that's pretty much it. It doesn't stop men DMing me going, can you financially dominate me? You know, can you call me a dirty little pig and I'll give you some money? Or can you sell some photos of your feet? And when I was thinking about it at first, I was like, oh my God, you disgusting pervert. And, and then I realised, actually, it's not an unreasonable expectation on their part because there is no longer, or maybe there's never been, this neat dividing line between sex work and public-facing work. What influencing has done is really collapsed that distinction. So maybe could you just talk a bit about the relationship between Instagram, OnlyFans, influencing and sex work? I mean, I guess my book was looking at the intersections of influencer cult or social media platforms and all the various different industries that have always already existed. Sex work is one of them which I guess has had a lot of attention, particularly with OnlyFans and the ability for sex work, I guess, theoretically to be safer and also the huge wave of people that were drawn to it, especially during the pandemic. So it had a huge explosion of people that were signing up to it. What was interesting about kind of the relationship now between sex work and influencer culture is that one of my early readers was somebody who had been a sex worker for over a decade. Um, she built up an interesting kind of following online, a huge kind of following online of people who you know, subscribed to her content but also just followed her. She had never seen herself as an influencer. As far as she was concerned, she was she created content, sexual content. She was interested in being a celebrity. It wasn't a stepping stone into that realm. Whereas other people in the book saw sex work as just a step towards getting where they wanted to be in the realm of celebrity. Uh, you know, they wanted to follow the Kardashian road. They wanted to follow the, the Cardi B road, get a partnership fashion over. And there was almost a merge, there was almost like an overlap. And what the person who'd been a cam girl for a long time had said was that what she'd noticed was that platforms like OnlyFans and rising precarity had led to a lot of influencers joining these platforms not really necessarily understanding it. She said kind of gentrifying the platforms and then effectively kind of jumping off. So I guess it's like the relationship is quite complicated. It, what I do feel though is that some of these platforms happen, are happy to effectively harness, I guess, the interest or the desire to engage with sex workers or uh, erotic content, but actually they will happily then sell them down the river. So for example, when they get investors, when they want to suddenly transition and therefore become more appealing to all types of influencers or content creators, they will then cut them off. So we saw that on Tumblr, OnlyFans, there were suggestions of that happening as well. So even then the relationship with these platforms is one in which at any moment they can change the rule, they can change the terms and your, your income can be put at risk. So yeah, I think, I think for me, the relationship speaks to just how much how precarious these spaces are. So there's that persistent rumour around the Love Island girls that when they're in Dubai or any of these exotic locations, actually what they're doing is sex work, ex escorting. What do you make of those rumours? Is that just a way to demean women by using the stigma that's been associated with sex work? Or is there some truth in it? And that is the sort of 
side of influencing that we don't get to see. I mean, I can't comment on those rumors. I don't, I don't, engage, with, I don't engage with those rumors. I'm not getting I, sued, I, I, not I wouldn't, today. I wouldn't want to comment. I don't look at any of those rumors. The only thing that in my book, which I would say is, it's kind of mostly pure journalism. So it's not, not, it's not essays, it's not polemic. It, fundamentally, it's going out and listening to people and talking to them, telling their stories of, of, of trying to make it in this realm, trying to make it in this world. And what, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I did was I spoke to people who were trying to make it as influencers who aspired to be on Love Island, who aspired to be, to aspire to rise to the top of this ecosystem. And then they had been caught up or in, in, in sets work. It wasn't where they wanted to be. It wasn't what they wanted to do. In some cases, they didn't even recognize it as sex work. Even though they're actively participating in it, they also, in some cases, delegitimized de it, which was interesting to me. And one of my early readers who was a sex worker said that that was something she felt uncomfortable with. The fact that it had drawn people into it um, because they saw it as a stepping stone also where generating income whilst also looking down on it and people who were only doing it as a form of income. So for me, that, that was the thing that I was looking at as opposed to the rumours of whether which influencer is really in Dubai because they've got a sponsor. One of the things that I was trying to work out reading this book is what is new and what's the continuation from what we've seen in older forms of celebrity. And in one of the early interviews with one of the women who had cosmetic surgery, she talked about it as investing in herself. And I'm trying to work out, is this something which is new in terms of how cosmetic surgery is being marketed to women who, in your words, want to get to the top of the ecosystem? Or is this a repeat of Anna Nicole Smith, you know, seeking out these surgical enhance enhancements in order to then become Anna Nicole Smith? I wouldn't say it's new. What I would say is it's an expansion. And that's the significant thing. The significant thing for me is it's like in Hollywood, and I go to LA, which is, and California itself, which is almost in, you know, it's the heart of these, in the, of this, of these industries. Not just because that is where Hollywood is and where uh, the hub of the attention economy and where all the, inf all the big influencers are, but also because that's where they create the apps in San Francisco. So you have this dichotomy between San Francisco and LA, um, where the faces goes and then where the people behind the faces go. And so it was a thing where the kind of Californiaization or the expansion of this, of this world is, is happening. So whereas you might have had some actors who were trying to make it in Hollywood feeling like they have to do cosmetic surgery to make it in films, now you have ordinary people everywhere feeling like they have to have procedures to appeal to the algorithm, to appeal to an audience. To, and I feel that the expansion of that is what is, is significant at this moment in time where these things are ubiquitous and on, but the things the things like the risks themselves are not necessarily presented that way let alone the other kind of exploitative angles like the pop-up surgery companies that come don't really take the ownership over the people who are getting some of these procedures and in my book you know I go and I interview um, one of the more high profile kind of underground surgeries, well, somewhat underground surgeries. I mean, I never read the phrase freelance surgeon before reading your book. And that's one of the things that chilled me to my bone. I was like, freelance data entry, sure. Freelance is it, uh, surgeon. Is, exactly. And he was, trying to, he was trying to convince me to get surgery. And I was like, what are you trying to say? And, but then he was so intense and he was telling me, you will grow your followers if you get surgery. 
I didn't tell him I wanted to grow followers. My Instagram was, at the time was private. And he was like, you know, you will grow your followers. I promise you, if you get the surgery, it will change your life. You can make more money. And that was a, that was a sale that he was giving to me. And so if he's giving this sale to me, and I'm kind of a journalist, I'm not in a position of precarity, you have to magnify that to what is happening and what we're kind of seeing at the moment. Um, and so with the kind of BBL industrial complex, it was, it was, it was a lot What's more... What's a BBL? Just because I mean, we've got some old trade unionists watching this video who've never heard of it before. Now, everybody who watches Navarro Media is down at BBL. I, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> but um, it's like a Brazilian butt lift. It's the kind of Kim Kardashian surgery, moving fat around your body into your, into your buttocks um, for a particular shape. So the proliferation of that shape was a lot more than just, oh, this woman here has this shape, everybody wants to look like her. It's like, no, there is an economic motive, not just for people directly trying to uh, become you know, popular and grow their Instagram following, but also fundamentally, the actual incentives that the companies offer the people who do it. Well, if you get more people to come and get surgery, you will get discounts, you will get free surgery, you might even be paid. And so just like how Uber expanded because once upon a time, you know, if you pass the app on somebody else, they'll give you £10 discount and therefore there were people in the early days who were just always travelling for free. That same model was being offered by surgeries, uh, by surgeries in various places across the, across the world to get people to come and get surgeries with them. And then you see the proliferation of the shape and there's a lot more happening than just, oh, these people want this shape. It's like there's a whole incentive model driven by this, this new pursuit of uh, a deal with Fashion Nova or Boohoo or what, what have you. I mean, one of the things which is made really clear in the book is that there is a chain of exploitation going on. So there's the immediacy of the exploitation of these companies preying on the precarity of mostly young women, saying you have to look like this in order to either get a free procedure or free clothes or get paid to um, you know, market these items. And then there's also the exploitation in the supply chain itself. So could you maybe explain how the Fashion Nova model or indeed the Boohoo model here in the UK operates? I mean, so the company that I looked at a lot was Fashion Nova. Fashion it's those like very clingy dresses where there's always some underboob, right? It's like very. It's, 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 it's like it's like party wear, isn't it? It's party wear, but fundamentally, you wear it once because you wash it once and it it just rips anyway. But it's it's a certain type, it's a certain style. It's very much embedded itself in hip hop culture. So Cardi B, for example, had had a line that they made sure that you know, rappers and, you know, their entourages are endorsing or rapping about, about it. And it, it became a, a kind of a big thing in that sense. Now, Fashion Nova, which has the same model as a lot of these fast fashion companies, you know, it, it buys clothes from vendors, vendors who largely they don't know, they don't produce it, they're quite removed. I'm sure a lot of people have read um, No Logo, for example, which is, you know, the great book about uh, you know, how companies began to no longer be involved in production and therefore could pretend that, well, we don't know how these clothes are made. So they buy clothes from vendors. A lot of the time these are made in sweatshops. One of the sweatshops, uh, a lot of them are based, for Fashion Nova, are based in, in LA. Bizarrely, people think that they're just completely in South America or Asia, but actually some of these sweatshops are based in, the, in these cities. I mean, we have some in Leicester. Um, and I interviewed a woman who was undocumented. Um, she was escaping kind of gender-based violence. And... She was working for a lot of these different vendors. And she was, not only was she talking about the condition that she was in, but fundamentally how regularly 
you know, she wouldn't be paid, let alone when she was underpaid. Wage theft was rife. And kind of garment workers are super exploited. Fast fashion is one of the big, biggest polluters in the world when it comes to the environment. And that entire realm, that entire world, that entire industry is built on a system of labor exploitation. Whilst ironically, them kind of repacking its packing itself via influences, a lot of the time who themselves, especially the micro-influencers, don't necessarily have a huge amount of agency themselves. Um, then buying the clothes to hopefully get a deal with the, with the companies to then promote the clothes. And sometimes those groups of people are even related. So with Fashion Nova, a lot of the models or the people who are trying to become Nova babes, as they call them, are people who are you know, women of color, maybe they could, maybe they could be African-American, Latina, um, and then people who are making the clothes, like Latina women predominantly. And so you see this company which is like winning twice. It's getting these people to buy their clothes so that they can tag them in the clothes so they can promote the clothes for, for a fee whilst also exploiting the labor. So it's like, it's a complete smoke and mirrors as to, okay, what is the value that this company's adding? They're not even like a great designer like Versace or something. It's like, mm. what's going on here? And so it's like fast fashion, fast fashion in itself. I mean, it's been heavily um, scrutinized, rightly so. It's quite well known. But I guess in my book, it was trying to look at just how it is that they're able to effectively turn glitter into gold. Because, mm. I mean, listen, if you want to offer me a Versace deal, I say, you know what, I like those designs, but fashion over. Boohoo. I mean, what is the value that these companies are really adding? All I see is them just taking. The clothes that look good on Instagram well, and look is, I mean, dreadful they, I mean, do they even look on Instagram? That's another debate in itself, isn't it? But, it's, yeah, I guess that, that, that was one of the companies that I looked at. But, you know, all these companies fundamentally have the same model and the same aesthetic. I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting reading your book was looking at this influencer model of the economy and then also seeing how that's changed finance capital and how that operates. Because I think about Elon Musk or even Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos founder and CEO who's just been done for fraud. And you can see an influencer logic in terms of how businesses are operating as well. So is it the case that you've got you kind of two transformations happening? One is that the economy has changed how fame works, but also fame is changing how the economy is operating. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. I think, I mean, Elon Musk is a big time influencer. I mean, I primarily see him as an influencer. And I think if, if you look at startup culture and influencer culture, are one and the same, because influencer culture is just startup culture, but of the self. And even the logic by which they work by, very similar. I was keen to look at, some of it was in the book, some of it, is not as pronounced as it could have been, which is, you know, the idea of the LinkedIn influencer and people trying to brand themselves as, you know, thought leaders, as smart, and trying to basically participate in capitalism. And the book is fundamentally about trying to make it in this system. And everybody believes that they can make it in the system. So Molly May's comments, we've all got 24 hours in a day, right? Is a belief even though she was criticised for it, is a belief that is almost the default orthodoxy of a generation born post-Thatcher. Everybody believes that, you know, that, that, we, that we can do, all you have to do is work hard. And the book was really trying to look at that and say, okay, let's look at the people who are trying, but actually this is not quite as clear. The realm in which people can participate is a very small elite of people 
going to a particular type of school, sound a particular way, um, and I have access to this pool of startup culture, or, or, I'm sorry, of um, venture capital, which, to be honest with you, that in itself is a massive Ponzi scheme in itself. <laughs> and that was why the book was drawing on that, because VC, it works, I mean, it, we're just going to keep giving companies money to dominate markets. They, they don't even have to return any profit. And they're still going to, we're still going to give them money. Uber, the next round. we work. I mean, we work is a classic kind of, a, class, a classic example of, you know, a, a company just literally pumped full of cash and never having to even produce any value, not even a profit. And yet this man is held up as a business guru. And it's like, that is working by the logic of a Ponzi scheme to a certain extent. Although obviously for legal purposes, I can't say it's a Ponzi scheme, but the logic is there. You can see, we, we, we can see it. And they're not the only one. That's how the entire realm works for an elite group of people who are super tiny, but they're able to participate. They're able to, be, to get an investment. They're able to get rich. Everybody else, though, if you don't meet those credentials, you know, you're fighting it out for a deal with Fashion Nova or you know, you're getting drawn into a Forex or NFT Ponzi scheme. And uh, for me, that was where the, the, the crossovers are quite interesting. I mean, so let's talk about then the lumpen proletariat of Sigma Grindset, right? So you talk about this example of Dreams Come True Limited. Could you just tell that story for us? Okay, so this is um, one of the stories which actually I had, I wrote a long read initially called The Walls of Instagram, um, which was largely about how suddenly all these boys from ENDS, uh, you know, from the hood, suddenly just driving around in I don't know, Jaguars, expensive cars, wearing three-piece suits, and saying that they were traders. And I was like, okay, this, this is interesting. You know, who are they working for? And they were saying, we're launching our, we've launched our old hedge funds. There are barriers of entry to a hedge fund. Um, not having millions and billions <laughs> being not, one not, of them. Um, so it was interesting. And largely what I then uncovered was that they were effectively working as marketers, signing up largely people like them and other young people to deposit money with companies who said that you could trade kind of Forex, but via things called CFDs. Um, they're a type of, I guess, maybe options. Some people call them just straight betting products in which you bet whether the market's going up or down or whether things going up or down that day. But they're super, a lot of the time, they're super rigged against the consumer. But it's presented as just, you know, this is how people trade in the city. This is how it works. And I've so, watched The Wolf of Wall Street. You know, I know how this operates. They're, 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 they're basically. And so there was all you had, and the irony is that some of the people who are in the book, and that story particularly, you know, they're based literally near here. And, you know, this office is a curious uh, studio in what used to be like quite a impoverished estate. Mm. And the irony is that one of the, the startup companies that I was familiar with is actually based just in the other building, um, who incubate money for super elites who've been to Stanford and, and what have you. He so, told us that we were going to double our money. <laughs> but it's like, um, it's, it's like the, I guess what it is, it's like the kind of disparity of being able to see wealth in your periphery, being able to see people who are wealthy, being born in a wealthy city, and wanting to participate, and wanting some of that, and that being understandable. But really, the barriers to that are very, very real, but also invisible. And then how then do you participate? And largely, 
it's through shadow versions of that, which are reliant basically on a lot of smoke and mirrors and numerous leading people. And so in that case, what they were signing people up to was super dubious companies, super dubious products, super super dubious products, very Wolf of Wall Street. But in many cases, it was, in many cases, it, it was even, it was kind of worse. I mean, what role does then pop cultural representation play in this? Because we're talking about Wolf of Wall Street and it has that classic Scorsese thing of the rise to power being so much more compelling than the downfall, right? You, you get that when you watch Goodfellas. You want to see Ray Liotta work his way up through the mafia. You don't really care about how yeah, he yeah, yeah. ends up falling. And so do you think that there is a kind of relationship between these depictions of ill-gotten gains where ultimately you are backing the anti-hero, whether that's Jordan Belfer or someone else, and then you've got people trying to replicate that in real life because they think that that fictional representation there's something real about I, it. I, I think I think there there's truth to that. I think, I think there's more to it, and I, I think it's like Mark Fisher's right. This is the system. No one can imagine an, an alternative system. There's almost like an acceptance that there's inequality built into this system, uh, that it's not fair, and that you just have to do what you have to do. Um, you know, you have to get rich or die trying. You know, you you have you have to fight your way out. It doesn't matter how, because it's just life's unfair that's it and so and being poor sucks like it sucks and and, and it sucks and that for me is understandable and I relate to the people in the book and I draw on places where I am the people in the book and it's like the underdog right you're always going to cheer for them the underdog you're always going to back them and in pop culture the underdogs even when they're committing crime as far as you're concerned that's you and so if you don't have the connect you don't have the uncle at Goldman Sachs you know, it's like, it's like everything is legitimate, pretty much, to, 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 to getting out. And I, and I think that, that that's, that's a part of, I guess, the decay of capitalism. What it forces people to do don't have many, who, who, who have many options. And that was something that I wanted to come out in the book, so I hope it did. And I think the pop culture is a, is a big part of supporting that infrastructure and almost supporting, like, in some cases, yeah, you're right, there is no alternative. You just have to do this, and, this, and these are our heroes. And so you have the Wolf of Wall Street meme, which was a big thing. Hip hop, hip hop today is like is very much not counter hegemonic. It's very much just like yep, yep, get that money any man, any means necessary. You know, it's not necessarily critical. Certainly, a, you know, the artists that we're all like popping bottles to or whatever. So it's like I think pop culture has, has a big as a big part of that, and I think that you got to a place now where even anti capitalism has become like aesthetic. Mm. It's just like yeah, man, Catholic is so bad. Here's my link to Amazon. You know, it's like, it's just like... There's no ethical consumerism in late capitalism, so cash at me. Basically. And um, I, was, I was interested in some of the, I guess, the depoliticization of radical language. And I wrote a mm. bit about that in a chapter on Black Twitter mm. and what that had become. Um, using a lot of radical language, even citing radical kind of thinkers, but not really understanding them and largely appropriating them for purposes that are against their wishes. I think I saw somebody do a campaign for Uber citing Olive Morris. And I mean, if you know anything about Olive Morris, those things can't really run. So I guess it's about kind of like, what is the, what impact does this have on our political imagination? And also a lot of the people in the book would make up what was, I guess, once upon a time, the working classes or whatever. Mm. But the sensibility 
of people who might be termed as working class has shifted. And that has presented, obviously, political challenges, you know, certainly for Labour Party in terms of when they're rallying a base, who that base is, what their sensibility is. So when someone like Molly May says what she says, right, it's like a lot of people from the end, from the kind of estates of around here, they say, yeah, this is common sense. And so when that sensibility shifts, then, then how then do you galvanise people to actually tackle some of the exploitations and inequalities um, in, the, in these systems if they believe that well, this is just how it is? I mean, do you think that this is something that's inerrant to the form of social media? So you give the example of the woman who did a campaign with Uber citing Olive Morris. You can only do that if you forget Olive Morris's politics, her anti-capitalism and the exploitative nature of Uber, right? It's the only way in which that can hang together. They, they weren't hijacked. This is what they were there to do. This is their purpose. Um, when Twitter says we're going to introduce a function where we, you can monetize your tweets and, you know, I'm going to tip you for a fire tweet, what are you going to start doing? You're going to start dragging everybody because, you know, suddenly there's money in it. So it's like the capacity of these platforms for actual social progress or campaigns or civil rights movements, I think is very, very limited. And then you get to a point where then everything just becomes posting, you know, as yeah. you say in Kizvani, so it's, just, it's just all content. And... I think that the incentives of these platforms on you know, aspirational people who weren't winning is, was fundamentally what I was interested in in the book. That was, that was really what I cared about. I mean, in one of your chapters, which I think is Black Lives Matter, Here's My Cash App, you were writing about an influencer who I have also written about, who's Slumflower, and I talked about the ideology of intersectional Thatcherism, that there is a way to make some of the most cruel, competitive, transactional ways of viewing the world seem radical because you, you attach the language of identity politics. Do you think that that maybe also speaks to a weakness in identity politics, that it's easy to weaponize it for anti-solidaristic means? Yeah, I mean, I think that you hear this word, right, that founders love to use you know, community, our community, community. You know, Zuckerberg will talk about community. I mean, they just mean really users and consumers. That's just really mm. what they mean. Um, but obviously they know the emotional attachment that, that word has to all of us. And so it's like what you see on, online is that the incentives galvanize you to monetize a community. The easiest way to do that are along kind of partisan politics, um, race, gender. And so people do that. And so they speak to a demographic, but they don't speak to them necessarily with care. These platforms are not necessarily built for comradeship or equality. There's no kind of like, it's not a flat structure. So you're just at the helm. And so there's no, there's no like critical function. So if there's like a community meeting, a real community meeting and people talk, so I disagree with that, that's wrong. Those functions are not really are not, really, not really built into these platforms like that, not really. If someone can like criticize you, but you can ignore them, you can block them. You know, this is about you accruing your, your audience, More, especially on Instagram. Um, Twitter is slightly different. But I think that when you bear that in mind then, it's, it's not a space that is really conducive to learning or understanding, it's just about content. And that, that is where I think so much is kind of lost and so much is appropriated and misunderstanding is so rife. And I guess the chapter on kind of 
Black Lives Matter, here's my cash app, is looking at how you know, genuine civil rights movement can effectively just become content. Mm. And that's it. And just how effectively depoliticizing that is and harmful to real kind of social movements. Mm. And then how these things can be sub subverted and then easily bastardized. And therefore, you're no longer talking about maybe even the things that really matter because suddenly now it's, you get more views for talking about this or you willfully want to misunderstand somebody to turn that into a fire tweet. And those for me were the real kind of worries of some of the incentives of these platforms. I mean, willful misunderstanding, you should do that in a comment piece for a broadsheet, surely. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm kind of joking and also not, which is there are lots of people who would look at either Twitter or Instagram or cryptocurrencies and NFTs and go, there is something inherently radical about these disruptive forms of technology. So cryptocurrencies are disruptors to conventional currencies. Uh, Twitter celebrity and Twitter pundits are disruptors to the punditocracy of the Times and the Telegraph and the Observer. Do you have any sympathy with that way of looking at it? Um, I think in the book, I'm, I do write that crypto you know, can be, is an innovation. And for some groups, especially when they're subverting kind of corrupt governments um, and, and they're doing activism, super useful, super, super valuable, disruptive. And, but then sometimes it's not even about the, the innovators, it's about the imitators and then how easily these then become kind of black markets for, for scams and then really the kind of reproduction of basically bullshitting as a way of life and Ponzi schemes and how easily then this is not, it doesn't become a kind of means of doing something interesting or truly provocative. It just becomes, you know, more bullshit. Um, so NFT is a little bit different though, to be honest with you, to crypto, in my opinion. Mm. <laughs> and I've got this lovely ape to sell you. Listen, NFTs are, are, are some next thing. But um, I mean, I think that crypto and NFTs have something in common, they, which is a no, transfer yeah, of yeah, yeah. wealth from late to early adopters. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that's basically how the entire ecosystem works. But that's how that's how a pyramid scheme works. Anybody who joins the pyramid scheme first always wins. That, that that's that's literally it. It's only when you come later when it, when 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 there's an issue. Um, crypto, the real actual technology, super innovative, super disruptive, super interesting, has a lot of potential. But some a lot of the inner a lot of the imitations, um, which we saw with a lot of the coin offerings that happened in 2019, 2018, which were not based on really much. People, a lot of people lost a lot of money. Then these things were just right for people being exploited again. Um, but because they didn't really understand it, but they can see it and it's presented as a way for which you can you know, transform your life and, and participate in capitalism. Again, these people are, are taken advantage of. Um, NFTs, as we understand it, I mean. I mean, they, they, people can say, well, it's just capitalism. You just, you just create value. You, know, you, you just create value and you try and sell it on. You're like, well, yeah, yeah, I get that too. That's, that's a problem too, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but in the, book, uh, in the book, for me, the influencer economy and just being able to monetize attention is really what drives that space. Building hype around a particular coin or a particular thing 
and then somehow putting an an extortionate price in it, people then paying for it, anyone who comes late loses out. And that kind of model is largely, disproportionately will always impact those who largely come from the bottom. Mm. So last question. Your final chapter, I think, is called We're All Influencers Now. Is there any way out or did we effectively lock the door behind us the minute we logged on? I think if you are online and you have a social media account, which I do, and it is public facing, which it is, then you're, 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 in, you're, you're in the pyramid. Um, you're, you're in the pyramid. The book is trying to look at the different ways that being in it then changes our behavior or changes the behavior of this character that I follow. And therefore then saying, okay, hang on, is this kind of what we want? This how you want to participate? Do we want to be able to, to monetize our tweets and therefore what happens next? Um, do, we, do we want to have a space that is where our social life and our economic life are one and the same where you have to monetize your personal relationships? Um, what are the costs of monetizing the self? Um, these are the ways that you can be empowered at the top, but what about at the bottom? What is the question about kind of labor, ownership? the power that we actually have with some of these sites. Navarra Media has been shut down on some of these platforms. Just like, just gone. It came back, but then, you know. It was a scary two hours. It was, you know, <laughs> it was a scary two hours. Um, so, you know, these are questions that I'm not the only person who's raising these questions, right? Um, and then you ask yourself, so, so what happens next? And I guess this is the scary thing. The scary thing at the moment is that it, cut, it almost feels like this is it. There is no alternative, but there's almost like a lack of imagination, so to speak, of how we go forward. And I think that lack of imagination is something which we're coming up against over and over again at this moment in time. And uh, I do cite Mark Fisher. He talks obviously about capitalist realism, but influencer culture is literally the expansion of that system now into every sector of our lives. And I think that writing the book, the more I've written the book, the more... I've used um, certainly Twitter less. Um, obviously, I'm a journalist, so it is a newswire. So it, you kind of you almost you almost kind of held to ransom in that sense. You mm-hmm. have you have to engage, you have to engage you have to use it until I was published was publishing and selling the book. Typical. My my Instagram was closed. I mainly just be shit posting, you know, what I mean, <laughs> stories. Um, so I, I think I, I think that our relationship with these platforms we know is wholly unequal and is propelling inequality and there is exploitation that a lot of time is hidden and I like to think that some of the book brings to life some of the exploitation that sometimes we don't always think about the solutions oh no maybe it's logging off I certainly don't think that I I certainly do not overestimate the progressive potential of Mm. them put it that way well, Samian, thank you so much for joining us. And if you like this, why not check out my bored ape? Um, no, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.